Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45 with Pastor John King. Good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day. Ladies, stand up. Moms, stand up. We want to give you a hand. Come on. You need to stretch one more time. Ladies. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. What a time. What a time. Well, last week, uh, well, first of all, this week we're going to continue in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45 today. As you're turning there, um, let's just kind of quick review from last week, and I, I'm going to try and keep these more brief. Last week, we learned some important lessons about faith and receiving access to the kingdom of God, God's kingdom, the heaven. You know, we talked a little bit about that. But when it comes to faith, we are to look at the character of children. We are to act like children, yet not be childish. We want to be childlike. We want to be childlike is trusting. Childlike is dependent, responsive, submissive, obedient, and learning. I know there's bad days every, all, all the time, but uh, for the most part. And humble and forgiving. We enjoy God's kingdom by faith, believing that the Father loves us and will care for our daily needs, just as children look to their parents to be cared for. Now, by contrast, we also learned of this rich young ruler last week who literally ran to catch Jesus on the road and submitted himself before the Lord. That was a great start. And he asked the most important question of all, really. He said, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? That, that's, that's, the, that's the key question. Why? Because everybody dies. Everybody goes to the grave. Now this question opened the door for Jesus to challenge the young man by first pointing out that unless this man saw Jesus as the true and living God and not simply a teacher, well, there was no point in continuing the discussion. Unless you see Jesus as God, there's no point in asking him about eternal life. And then the Lord directed him to the commandments in order to kind of measure his obedience. Remember, this was a rich young ruler. He was a Hebrew. And the law meant much to them. It was everything. And the man, remember, was quick to boast that he had kept the commandments ever since he learned them in childhood. And we know, of course, that uh, this was obvious um, self-righteousness on the part of this rich young man. But you know what? Jesus didn't condemn him for it. Instead, Jesus loved him and gently pointed out the man's primary weakness. You see, Jesus is the picture of someone, our Lord and Savior, who can speak the truth in love. And he said, well, he wanted the best for this guy because he saw the potential in this young man. And he said, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and take up the cross and follow me. Now, unfortunately, this man left the Lord's presence in worse shape than when he arrived. He could not part from his riches, so he went away sorrowful. Jesus used these real-life encounters to teach his disciples the important principles of childlike faith and true wealth in the kingdom of God. The, the low road of humble servanthood or the poverty, the poverty of worldly riches. It actually makes a person spiritually poor or can. So even if your faith in Christ counts you, costs you everything, all of your wealth, your family, even your social status, God will replace it with more abundance through the riches of what? His grace and mercy. So today, as we continue on this journey, and Jesus is, is taking that road marked with suffering, okay? We sang that song. He's walking this morning. He's continuing on to Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him. And so today marks the third time that Jesus will predict his soon death and resurrection. 
And he will communicate with more clarity and determination than ever before. Yet, his disciples continue to be at odds with his plan and purpose as they seek to achieve their ambitions through earthly wisdom and the world's definition of greatness. Let's read the passage, if you will. Today, we're going to be in Mark 10, verses 32 through 45. Mark 10, verses 32 through 45. Now, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. But then he took them, the twelve aside, and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. He said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Verse 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to him, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, well, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and will baptize the baptism I am baptism with. You will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you so much that you've brought us to this place once again. You've brought us here today so that we can sit, so that we can listen to your word, Lord God. You brought us here for our fellowship and our time to worship you. But now, Lord, you seek to penetrate our mind and to go deep into our hearts. That's what your word does. It cuts both ways, Lord God, and you bring truth to our hearts and minds. May it result in changes. May it result in obedience. May it result in truth and a peace that settles our soul. As we continue to abide in you, as we continue to enjoy your mercy here today together. Go before us now. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So Jesus has the third prediction of his death and resurrection. It starts out here in verse 32. He says, now they were on the road going to Jerusalem. Notice it says actually going up to Jerusalem. And he was going before them. Now they were ascending from a southwest direction uh, coming up from the Jordan River Valley. So they were actually going south. And so you would think geographically, going south, I'm going down to Jerusalem. But actually, any ascent to Jerusalem is an uphill climb. And so they were going up to Jerusalem, coming again, like, like I said, from the Jordan River Valley. And Jesus was going before them. In other words, he's leading the way. The Lord here is on a mission. Because this is his last trip to Jerusalem. This is his last trip. But something's quite different, and they notice this. They notice the the Lord's countenance. They notice his body language. He normally walks with them, but now he's going before them. Isaiah 50 verse 7 says this, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, And I know that I will not be ashamed. You see, the Lord knows. 
He's on a mission. And so seeing that, him going before them, it, notice it says they were amazed. They were astonished. You know, it's kind of like, this is real. Okay, this is happening. It's starting to dawn on them perhaps, but it certainly was making uh, great clarity in Jesus' mind about what's getting ready to happen. You see, something has changed. He's more than determined than ever to go to Jerusalem. Yet, we'll find out, they still didn't quite understand. But you know what? He was going to secure their salvation. Think about that even today as you sit and you recall the, what's going on here, how Mark describes the situation. You can mark this day, you don't know the date, but you can mark this day that the Lord went with great confidence and great determination to secure your salvation. He's the captain of your soul. And they admired his courage. And as they followed, they were also afraid. It was like those who fear harm or injury. You know, they'd been walking with Jesus and they'd been through many wonderful experiences. And there were times to be sure that they were afraid. But this time, it was different. Everyone knew of his opposition from the scribes and Pharisees. And now he's leading them right into the mouth of the lion. He's bringing them into Jerusalem. The head place, the head shed where all the religious people hang out. The ones that control the nation Israel. Under the permission of the Romans. Matthew twenty twenty nine says, Now as they went up out of Jericho, talking about this very same event, a great multitude followed them. Everybody was going to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And so he had his disciples. So, you know, Mark allows us to see his interaction with his disciples and yet the great multitude that's with him. This is a good principle for us as we follow Jesus. Even when you don't understand what's going on, even when you're fearful, when you see yourself entering suffering and danger that you know you can't avoid, perhaps the death of a loved one, terminal sickness or persecution you can think of the captain of your soul Jesus is walking before you you can trust him an old poet wrote this he said the savior what a noble flame was kindled in his breast when hasting to Jerusalem he marched before the rest And at that point, it says, Mark says here that he took the twelve aside. He began to tell them the things that he would have happened to him. He wanted his disciples to be prepared. Things were going to happen very quickly. You know, sometimes when things get in motion in life and events happen, they move very, very quickly. And we're entering very shortly into the final Passion Week of Jesus. Luke 18.31 says that he took the twelve aside and he said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and all the things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. That's very significant. Again, he's increasing the detail about what's getting ready to happen. When he said, all the things are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man, for instance, as Hebrew men, they would have grown up under Old Testament teaching. They'd be very familiar with Psalm 22, for instance, or Isaiah 53. Each of those writings providing graphic detail of Jesus' torture and death on the cross. So when he said, all the things that were written about me are going to happen, their minds would go, oh, you mean all those things. Psalm 22:14, for instance. He says, it says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. The disciples' knowledge of these prophetic scriptures would explain why they were amazed and astonished 
about Jesus and what he was doing. His determination to continue the journey. He was passionate about his calling. Excuse me. His, uh, his, Jesus' devotion rubbed off on you. That's the question for us today, folks. Has Jesus' devotion rubbed off on you? Maybe you're a prayer warrior. Maybe you're a devoted mom or dad looking to see your children walking in the joy of the Lord. Perhaps you sense a calling to the mission field or simply to step up and volunteer your time for the sake of the gospel. When it comes to your faith in Christ, what are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? He says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now the prior two times, Jesus had told them what was going to happen. You know, that he would be suffer, he would be uh, tortured, he would be killed, and he would rise again. He always says that. Now he tells them where it's going to happen. And then he goes on, he says, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Again, we see Jesus using the messianic title, the Son of Man. In fact, we know that this is one of his favorite titles. Why? Because it's written 78 times, at least 78 times in the New Testament, how he refers to himself. And it's here it's clearly connected with his sufferings. Now, some people believe that the title, the Son of Man, refers to his perfect humanity, having condescended himself in the human form to identify with the world that he came to save. Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. But this title also points directly to his deity. His return to earth to rule and reign in Matthew 25.31 his ability to forgive sins in Mark 2.10. He said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And this Son of Man, he says, would be betrayed by Judas. We know that. He would be condemned to death, despite the fact that he was innocent and would be declared innocent several times in the coming days. It was a gross injustice. John 1.11 says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And he adds another detail. He will deliver him to the Gentiles. He reveals the roles of the Romans in his death. Delivered. The Jews had no authority to carry out their sentence. It had to be done by the Romans. And for a Jew, this was the ultimate betrayal. To be handed over to their despised Gentile rulers. It says here in verse 34, he continues on. He says, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. You see, Jesus provides much more detail of what was awaiting him. And these details show that only someone with knowledge of the future could possess them. One writer notes this. He says, with each prediction of Jesus' death, he gives an additional element. I don't have these scriptures up for you, but Mark 8.31, this is what he said the first time, his first announcement. He said, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. That's the basic future that awaits him. Now the second time there's a hint of betrayal in Mark 9.31. For he taught his disciples and said to them that the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he was killed, he is killed. He will rise on the third day. And now here on the third time, he's, he's talking about all the extra stuff. You know, the jesting, the mocking, the scourging. So the picture becomes more and more clear in the future of, of what Jesus was going to do. This writer says it this way, it would seem as if the picture became clearer in the mind of Jesus as he became more and more aware of the cost of redemption. Another writer says this, he says, this prediction of his death provides added perspective on the magnitude and intensity of our Lord's suffering. The twelve knew, of course, that they were going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But what they did not fully grasp yet 
was that Jesus himself would be the Passover lamb. He would be the sacrifice. The ultimate and acceptable sacrifice that alone would satisfy God and bring an end to the symbolic sacrificial system. Earth-shaking changes everything. Now one reason that Jesus needed to explain these truths to them in advance is that the concept of a dying Messiah, the writer says, was completely foreign to what had been taught all of their lives. Again, all of their lives they were taught something totally different. A 19th century historian wrote it this way. He summarized what these Jewish people, Judaism if you will in that day, what they believed, their expectations regarding the coming of the Messiah and the establishing of the kingdom. First, the coming of the Messiah would be preceded by a time of great tribulation. This is what they believed. We, we see this, again, think about what we're getting ready to study, uh, the end times, again. So they believed that the coming of the Messiah would be preceded by a time of tribulation. Then, secondly, in the midst of the turmoil, an Elijah-like prophet would appear heralding the Messiah's coming. Third, Messiah would establish his glorious kingdom and vindicate his people, the Jews. That's what they were expecting. Fourth, the nations would ally themselves together to fight Messiah. Fifth, Messiah would destroy all those opposing nations. Sixth, Jerusalem would be restored and made new and glorious. Seventh, the dispersed Jews scattered all over the world would return to Israel. Eighth, Israel would become the center of the world and all the nations would be subjugated to the Messiah. And finally, the Messiah would establish his kingdom which would become a time of eternal peace, righteousness, and glory. Such a perspective had no room whatsoever for a dying or even risen Messiah. That's why they, they couldn't, that's one of the reasons why they couldn't accept it. But Jesus was to be delivered. His words are true. He was, what, he was to be delivered to the Gentiles for torture and execution. Quickly, four forms of torture that are mentioned. He'll be mocked. This is to be ridiculed, to be scorned, insulted, humiliated, defiant. Now we do it electronically, like on Facebook or something, right? It hurts, though. People, people commit suicide because of social you know, meanness, uh, social media. He was punched and slapped while blindfolded. His beard was torn out. A crown of thorns was placed on his head. He was dressed in a scarlet robe. They would say, save yourself, or who struck you when they struck him while he was blindfolded. And then we know he would be scourged. This is to be beat with a rod or a whip, weighted with either jagged metal or bone chips. Thirty-nine or forty lashes were inflicted. The whole purpose of scourging was to inflict severe pain. Many would die from this alone. They would spit on him. This is a sign of utter contempt. Even to this day, it's a sign of utter contempt of a person. And then, worst of all, they would cruise him, crucify him. They would... They would, he would undergo the terrible suffering of the cross. Frederick Farrar wrote about the crucifixion. He said this, For indeed a death by crucifixion, crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramps, thirst, Starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of unintended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer, the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful, 
The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially of the head and stomach, become swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. And all these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety which had made the prospect of death itself of death, the awful unknown enemy at whose approach man usually shudders most to bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. Sometimes we get very selfish in our thought of us. You know, we're always on our mind, right? I'm always on my mind. Sometimes we question Jesus' love for us. But after reading about this and, and the, sort of the detail, do you now question Jesus' love for you? Do you grasp the, the depth and the height of it? His willingness to bear such pain and suffering for you and I? Physical pain and spiritual pain of the most absolute sense. On the cross, Jesus would bear condemnation of all the world's sin. He'll be separated from the Father for the first and the last time. Mark fifteen thirty four. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you question God's power? Because he never talks about his death without talking about his resurrection. He says, and on the third day he will rise again. So you may question his love for you. You may question his power. But if you will listen to him, you will know. Now Jesus, he wanted to silence their fears. By changing the coming events, they could not, or excuse me, he didn't want to change the coming events. He couldn't change them. He wouldn't change them. They could not be avoided. He had to suffer and die, but he also had to rise again. It would be a glorious for him in the end and all who are in him. That's what we live. That's what our faith is all about. The fact that we will not die eternally, but we will rise again because he did and because we are in him. And so even though they would not understand these disciples, they're hearing Jesus saying this, they're watching him walking in with great intensity. They would not understand the sadness and the grief and confusion that had to come first. Luke 18.34, it says, after Jesus said all these things, it says, but they understood none of these things. In Luke 18.34, he says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. In other words, even if they wanted to understand, this is the mystery of God's wisdom for us right now, even if they wanted to understand, at that time it was hidden from them. But notice, resurrection. You see, it doesn't just end in a sad ending. Resurrection, Luke 24, 44, and 45. After his resurrection, he said this to them. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. He's reminding them of the conversation he just had now. And notice what he says here in verse 45. He says, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. See, now it all comes back. It's like a, all of a sudden it just floods them and their mind and their understanding has now come. And they now they know that Jesus is now, everything he said, now they totally understand. They understand what he had to do, you know, and why he had to do it. Now, you would think at this point in our text, in verse 35, you know, having said all that we've said and learned all that we've learned so far and gone through the great detail of Jesus' coming suffering and, and crucifixion, 
It says that then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask, whatever we desire. It's like when your kids or your grandkids come up to you and they say, will you do something for me? Or I want this. And they want you to say yes before they tell you what it is. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. They, they want that blank check first before they say something. Now, these guys, they, they were called the sons of thunder. They kind of made a, a secret approach to Jesus. They were trying to get Jesus to commit with a yes before they revealed what they wanted. Very familiar tactic that people use. People with children, uh, people, people with... Uh, an agenda, when you're in a position to perhaps give them something, they come up and they try to front load you, is what we would say. And so Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, he just explained all this stuff. Keep in mind, this is, this, you know, we don't know how long it was. It just says then. You know, immediately they came to him and he says, well, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> As if I hadn't um, told you about what I'm going to do for you, which is the greatest thing I could possibly ever do for you. He, they're coming to him with these trivial things, and he says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And what does that show us? It shows us his divine patience and the kindness to those who he loves. And aren't we thankful for that? Aren't we thankful for, you know, how we can... We can take things, so, you know, it's, it's, again, it's like a parent or a grandparent trying to tell you something very seriously and all you want to ask for is, can I have some ice cream? Or can we go to the store and get some candy? <laughs> I get <laughs> any event. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. In light of all the crazy stuff that's going on, just like kids. And they said, he says, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, they said this, well, well, grant us that we may sit on your right hand and on your left, one on the left and one on the right in your glory. When we get to heaven, we want to we be the ones that sit closest to your throne. We want to be your top dogs in the coming kingdom. We also know that they, Matthew talks about it uh, in Matthew 20, verses 20 and 21. That their mother, the mother of Zebedee's sons, came to him with her sons. And she kneeled down and she asked something as well. So she tried to put in a, a plug. Now what's interesting is that this was Salome. Okay, Salome was Mary's sister. So this was Jesus' aunt trying to use her family influence for her sons. <laughs> that never happens, does it? <laughs> But why would they ask? Well, how dare they ask, really, right? You would say. But remember, we talked about it last week. Matthew 19, 28, he said this. He said, Jesus said to them, because they wanted to know, you know a little bit more about what was in store for them. And Jesus said to them, he, he says, in, as, uh, look in 19, 28, it says, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, in heaven, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glories, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So they were claiming a legitimate promise. They didn't just think this up. Jesus had already told them that they would inherit uh, thrones in heaven. But the problem was they had this ambition. They wanted to be top dogs. So Jesus says, oh, you know, ask her saying, what do you want from me? They said, and he says to them in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking for. You have no idea what you're asking for. Why? Well, because Jesus was going to have to suffer and die before they could eventually go up into heaven. Before they get to those thrones that he had promised, Jesus is going to have to suffer and die like he described. And he asked him a question. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Now the cup re refers to his coming torture and his suffering and death. To drink the cup means to fully experience something. And he is asking them if they really think that they're able to drain 
this cup of suffering that he was about to endure. In the Old Testament, the cup signified divine judgment on sin. By his cup, Jesus was most likely referring to the divine judgment poured out on him on behalf of all humanity. He says, you think you're going you, to do this? You think you can take it? You can drink this cup? He says, and will you be baptized in the baptism that I am baptized with? Now, we, when we think of baptism, we think of baptism. But uh, what this really means is to be, uh, it's sort of like a metaphor. To be overwhelmed over your head with calamities. To be drowning in misery. He says, you think you can be baptized in the baptism that I'm baptized with? with." Now notice, Jesus, even though he's being very direct, he's also being very kind as he gently admonishes them. He's not using harsh words. Because he knows the sin of human weakness. And it's a lesson for us parents and grandparents and those that, you know, you you think they should get it. it. It's a lesson for us to be kind and gentle and yet still speak the truth in love. And notice their answer in verse 39. Then they said to him, oh yeah, we're able to, of course, of course, no biggie. (laughs) Of course, we're we're able to drink the cup that you, I mean, come on. (laughs) Oh, goodness gracious. Martin Luther wrote this. He says, that is Christ, the Lord's kingdom, and he himself, the king in this kingdom. He opens the work. He drinks the cup. That is, he suffers and suffers more and more severely than all of his subjects. We see this from his gospel. Such example, all those must follow who acknowledge Christ as their head and Lord. As Paul says to the Romans in Romans eight seventeen, That we must become like to the image of the Son of God in suffering and thereupon glory. And he says it. Jesus says, you will indeed drink this cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized, you will be baptized. See, little did they realize what they were saying. They didn't realize what, quite what they were saying at all. But in later years, they would indeed have their share of the baptism of the cup. James would be the first two of the disciples to be martyred. And John would experience great persecution. Continuing his answer in verse 40, Jesus says, But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. Some commentators point out that Jesus is saying that assigning seats in heaven is not based on favoritism. They're asking a very awkward question. And it shows their ignorance about how God distributes gifts. They shouldn't treat it like a backstage pass that their aunt got for them. In Matthew twenty twenty three, he says the same. He says, so he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. You see, those seed assignments are based on the wise counsel of God. He has prepared the places of honor and selected those who are going to occupy them. As the entire salvation is a matter of God's mercy, says one writer, so also are the rewards of mercy. They cannot be distributed as earthly monarchs and rulers dispense their bounty according to the whim of the moment. Now, to make matters worse, in verse 41, these two guys had managed to alienate the other ten. How's that? (laughs) It says, and when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. They didn't like what they were doing. They noticed that these two were being sneaky. They were being sneaky little devils, is what they were doing. And they began to be greatly displeased. Now, you had division in the ranks. Wonderful. Great. Way to go. Let's just fight about things as the Lord is being very serious about what's going to happen. We're just going to bicker and fight over things. And many people would say, well, maybe they were simply mad because they weren't the first ones to ask. 
So Jesus now, he sees the argument beginning. So what does he do? He decides to huddle them up. Because remember, there's a multitude of people. This is kind of a public thing going on. He took them aside. And now he says, in verse 42, he calls them to himself and he says, look, he says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. You know, this is how the world is. The Romans in that day were a symbol of power and they ruled by force. Everyone was subject to pay tribute to Caesar. Everyone. And he says, and their great ones exercise authority over them, using their power over people to enlarge their power. Every great portrayal, especially movies like one of my favorite, Gladiator, uh, they try to show the power and the splendor of Rome. They don't diminish you know, the reality of Rome. Rome was actually quite a mess. If you read it historically, there were times when it was a dump. It was a dump. Festering dump. Especially in Martin Luther's time. But Rome is portrayed in the eyes of us and that we see looking back on history and was being portrayed then as something great. That's the power to aspire to. Think about our world now and, and power in our, in our globe. You know, what's the great powers of the world, if you will. But the, the point here is a question for you and I. Who do you and I choose as leadership role models? What do we see whenever a new administration takes office or a particular party overtakes another? Well, we see it. We're seeing it in a really grand scale right now. They seek, those who are in power, they seek to enlarge and to extend their power. It happens on all sides. And so when we take on leadership role models, those that we look up to, we need to ask ourselves the question, are we looking to that powerful, worldly, or are we looking for those that are like God? Godly ambition. And that's the last section for today. Godly ambition. Because it should lead to self-denial. It's opposite of what the world says. If you and I will follow Jesus' example, in verse 43, he says, yet it shall not be so among you. He's got them huddled up together. He's saying, here's how the world is. And then he says, but among you, it shouldn't be that way. He says, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. These earthly matters, they have no place among the church, among God's people. He says, whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant. Great, that's that word, that Greek word, megas, or mega. That's where we get mega, big, great. Whoever shall become great among you shall be your servant. Diakonos, that's the word for a deacon, a minister, somebody who attends to the needs of others. Like a, a table waiter. In God's kingdom, greatness is measured not by the amount of authority exercised but by the amount of service rendered let me say it again in God's kingdom greatness is measured not by the amount of authority that's being exercised but by the amount of service that's rendered the greater the service that is rendered in unselfish humility the higher will be the standing of a person in God's kingdom Famous verse 44. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slave of all. Slave of all. That, that word slave, doulos, in Christ. That means that's somebody who strenuously labors for another's salvation, disregarding one's own interest. What was Jesus doing? We, he went, when he went to suffer on that cross, he strenuously labored for the salvation of those who would receive him as Lord and Savior. Disregarding his own interests. Verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to the earth as a child and would die as a man. Not just any man, he's the son of man. He's God incarnate. And he is the creator of heaven and earth. The supreme son of God. 
who supremely humiliated himself for us. His mission was to minister to serve. What a glorious example we have before us, folks. The Lord of heaven came to earth as the Son of Man. He could have demanded and then enforced all of creation to serve him. He could have made it compulsory that you will bow down to me. He had the power to do that. Instead, he became the lowest servant of all. Think about that. The one, when you look at the stars, when you look at all of God's creation, you realize he became the lowest servant of all because he's the same one who created all that, who hung on that cross for you. What, what a, that just blows my mind. When you put it in that con- context, really, when you talk about a glorious example, that he would be a ransom, he gave his life as a ransom for many. An exchange. Chuck Swindoll wrote this. We could get ready to close. He says, he wrote, he says, because we live in a Christianized culture, the one that, and one that is democratic and capitalistic, we cannot fully appreciate how radical Jesus' teaching was in the first century. Free Romans and Greeks considered slavery a shameful existence. They would sooner end their own lives than become enslaved to others. Moreover, they measured personal greatness in terms of authority. In fact, they thought of the Roman emperor, the chief sovereign of the most powerful nation, as godlike because he possessed the power to command much of the known world. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yet he secured his kingdom by becoming a minister and a servant to all of us, to all who would ever live. He did not lord it over men. He ministered to them and he served them. Because he became the servant of all, God has now highly exalted him. We read in Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and giving him the name which is above every name. That in the name of Jesus every knee should bow and those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now maybe today you're wondering, maybe you remember the rich young ruler. You're asking yourself a very important question. How can I inherit eternal life? If the passage today didn't show you the need for a Savior, the one who will forgive your sins, knowing that our works and and our merit will never add up, if you don't admire the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, at least, and if you don't realize that the debt you and I owe to God is impossible to pay. And you have to ask yourself the question, like this rich young ruler, how can I rid myself of my guilt and my shame? How can I do that? Well, friends, as Martin Luther wrote, he says, how can you rid yourself of guilt and shame? In no other way but that our dear Lord Jesus Christ accepts our guilt and takes our sin from us and lays them on his back and suffers death, which we had earned by our sins in order that we might be free and liberated from death. If you're watching this program and you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, you haven't understood his true love, or maybe you do, maybe you see it now. It's very important for you, and I challenge you to spend time with God, to seek his face, to ask him the same question that that rich young ruler asked. How can I inherit eternal life? Come to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. Ask him to speak to you because he will not turn anybody away. And I could lead you through a sinner's prayer, but it's you who has to do business with God. It's you who has to sit before him. And it's you who will stand in judgment if you don't. 
So I beg and I plead, and, I, and not only do I challenge, but I beg and plead for you, whoever's watching this or here today, here's this message. If you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, now's the time. We don't know what we have. We don't know any days ahead of us. I'm going to ask Pastor John to come up. He's going to close us as I pray. Father, we thank you once again for this time together. We thank you for your word, which is so utterly important for us in our day. The world has no substitute that can take the place of the truth and the goodness that you have to offer. There, the world has no substitute. There's nothing, there's no place we can go to receive what you have to offer us. Many of us have tried that. Many of us have climbed the hill of self-righteousness and good works and come away empty. Lord, we bring nothing to the table because you brought everything to the cross. We thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness. I invite you to stand as we do our closing prayer today. It'll be, again, Psalm 90, verses 12 through 17. Let's read this prayer together. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil, that your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands, the word of the Lord. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.